Hi, True Crime family. I'm K-Mac. And I'm the answer. Come on, dude. I am kidding. And this is Bad Human. Hey, True Crime family. Welcome to Bad Human, a true crime podcast where we discuss those humans that reside at the bottom of the morality bell curve. Anybody who lives in the Midwest, yes, it is fucking cold, and we received about a foot of snow. Um, I did participate in the snow removal, which is not usual. Mm -hmm. And then I was sent inside when I accidentally (laughs) hit the answer in the back of the head with a snowball. Well, it wasn't, quote-unquote, accident, my ass. I would like to think that, but yeah, what got me is it went down which everybody knows the worst part is it goes down your coat, down your back, and that was very cold. Anyways, he literally turned around to me like I was Charlotte, our dog, and said, go inside. And he did. So everybody listening that knows the answer understands what was waiting for him when his ass came inside after he was done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's and enough old of that. fashioned. <laughs> yes, and I accepted your apology. As usual, you can follow us on Instagram at BadHumanPod if you have any case suggestions or just want to say hi or invite us to your wedding. Very excited that uh, two of our almost, well, I would say definitely favorite Australians, no offense to any other listeners, but these two have been loyal and we are friends, invited us uh, or are inviting them to the wedding. So it looks like we'll have to have a reason to go down under. I did learn how to say a lot of cities in Australia that I was saying wrong, including cans is not carns. Oh. Or no. Yes. I was saying it like a pirate. I was saying it wrong. Mm. Uh, Thank you to everybody who has followed or subscribed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you leave a review and we uh, read it online, what the fuck? (laughs) Read it out loud. We will reach out to you and you will get some bad human swag. Nice. Let's get to it. Uh, Today's case is a listener request. So thank you to Lauren for the suggestion. This case, I'm going to tell you they all are, but this one is hard to hear. It involves two absolutely beautiful uh, young girls who were uh, taken in a very sickening way by a sexual deviant and monster. However, I do think that these cases are important to share in a respectable manner because it does highlight gaps that are in our judicial system, especially when it comes to sexual offenders and predators. So clearly there's quite a few trigger warnings in this one. As usual, we will try to be as respectful as possible in the information we share and share what is important to make sure the message gets across. On the morning of February 13th, 2009, around approximately 7 a.m., 14-year-old Amber Dubois was seen walking to school. She had her backpack that held a $200 check that had been written for her 4-H club project where she'd planned to purchase a lamb who she'd already named Nanette. Aww. Amber's mom, Carrie, had gotten up early that morning around 5.30. Well, that's not early for everyone, but for some people. She went in to wake up Amber and told her that she'd be done with work early and they could go see a movie or spend some time together when she got home. Amber, who was described as a freckled, blue-eyed girl, uh, her family said was definitely into books and reading, was probably a bit of a sheltered teenager who loved animals, had good grades, was not into boys, makeup, MySpace. (laughs) Remember, this was in 2009, so MySpace was a thing. Mm -hmm. Top eight. 
or anything uh, that was, and she was content with basically just, again, books, being by herself. She liked to spend time alone reading, and she loved animals. Amber, uh, she'd been waiting for this day for a year. She'd been into animals since she was still in diapers, her mother Carrie uh, was quoted saying. Her science project was to raise a baby lamb. She was all excited when I left that morning. She's like, thanks, Mom. I love you so much. Thank you for the lamb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can tell this is not going to end well. No. Amber set off to walk to school. It was typically a 10 to 15 minute walk and classes started at 7.50. Uh, she walked to school every day, so this was not out of the norm. When Amber didn't show up at home by 4.30 that afternoon, her stepfather, Dave Cave, that's his name, Dave, Dave Cave. Cave. All right. Apparently his family likes to rhyme. Mm-hmm. This guy sounds like a stripper. He Dave could have Cave. Been David would have been better. But Anyways, Dave. Dave went looking for her. He first called Carrie and asked if she knew where she was at. Carrie said that she had called Amber's cell phone and could not get a hold of her. Dave then went to her teacher um, for her first class of the day, and the teacher said that she had not shown up for school. Mm-hmm. This immediately made his hair stand up, and he knew that something was wrong. About this time, Dave also got a call from Amber's dad, Mo, who said that he couldn't find Amber anywhere. So you have Carrie and Mo, mom and dad. They got divorced. Carrie remarried Dave Cave. And then they had a daughter together named Allison. So Amber had a younger daughter named Allison, went by Allie. The family started to piece together Amber's last steps. They immediately called the cops who showed up at the family home and began to investigate. Carrie asked if they could do an Amber Alert for her daughter, but police stated that you can't do an Amber Alert unless there is a vehicle involved. So I get it. Cops went to the school and confirmed with the office that Amber had never shown up, and the school had made a call to her parents stating that Amber never made it. However, neither parent got the message as they were both at work or were not at the house, but we're going to get to this in a little bit. The cops talked to her friends, and they also brought in canines to search the school in the area behind the school. There was some grasslands, um, some forest land behind there. The first hour, which I didn't know this um, and was watching a documentary on this, is known as the golden hour after a child goes missing because it's the most crucial and the time that you're most likely to find the child alive. Um, however, knowing that she didn't make it to school, and that was now 5 p.m. Yeah, you're a little behind the ball. That though. immediately creates concern. Mm. Her panicked family uh, went into search mode. They started to retrace Amber's route to school, put flyers around town. They were knocking on doors in the neighborhood. Police went through all of her emails, voicemails, text messages to see if they could find anything suspicious. They looked at her internet history. Nothing was suspicious. She wasn't chatting with any weird dudes online or in like Yahoo chat rooms. It was literally all about animal searches. (laughs) Like she loved animals. She had even said that when she grew up, she wanted to become a marine biologist and work at SeaWorld. Mm -hmm. Legit the nicest kid. Sounds like it. The family was also adamant that Amber would never run away. She was excited about her lamb. She was happy with life. There's no way that she was going to go anywhere on her own free will. The next day on the 14th, Saturday, the family started handing out flyers telling people that any information would be helpful. This brought two parents forward. The first um, parent said that she saw Amber walking a block away from the school. She was by herself. The second parent uh, said that she saw Amber walking and felt bad because it was raining and drizzling outside and wanted to stop to offer her a ride. 
But her friend said, Mom, it looks like she's talking to a boy. We should leave her alone. Mm. So they continued to school. Several talk about one of those moments. And you can't do anything about it. Like, absolutely no shame to the mom. But several other people called in saying that they saw her downtown or in a nearby uh, cave area. None of those panned out. Of course, police had to investigate the family. Yeah. They immediately learned that there was friction between Dave Cave and Amber because of the amount of time Amber would spend in her room with the door closed reading books. I, by the way, never got in trouble for being in my room reading books. Yeah, I don't think that would be. I was the opposite problem. My parents were like, "Oh my god, when do you fucking turn 18? <laughs> Just go. Get out of the house." Dave thought that she should socialize, socialize more, and spend more time with the family. Amber's father, Mo, put his life on hold, taking a leave from his job as an electrical engineer in L.A. and moved to a nearby hotel with his partner, Rebecca Smith. Mo was quoted as saying, usually I end my night um, by about two or three hours of crying, he said. I have to have my point to release. If volunteers and everyone around here starts to see my frustration, then it will trickle on through them. That's very selfless. Try to stay strong for other people. But yes, you do need to have your moment. Police investigated and followed thousands of leads, which all became dead ends. With one of those leads, guess who they started to look after or look at? Dave. Dun, da, da, da. Dave Cave. Oh, no. Police hypothesized that Amber may have been met with foul play in her own home and never even left the house. Because maybe people, you know, when someone goes missing, people think, oh, my gosh, did I, I see them? Did I not? By the way, side note, I witnessed a carjacking when I lived in Chicago. <laughs> Chicago, shout out to the crime. And literally, the detective showed me six pictures and asked me to pick out because I saw the carjacker. You would be amazed. It's really hard to actually and remember. match to remember it. So um, anyways, my point is that I'm not shaming the people <laughs> who claim that they saw her because it's really hard in moments of stress to remember exactly what you saw. That piece of shit did get arrested, though, by the way. Good. And he put in jail. It. He did. So, fuck you, buddy. Let's talk about investigating Dave Cave. Dave was the last person to see Amber, um, and he walked 48 hours through what he said happened that morning. And this is verbatim what he said. And I read this and, like, throwing up in my mouth because I think Dave Cave's trying a little too hard to be like everything is like kumbaya and whatever else. He said Amber was up and ready to go to school on time without any prompting because she knew that she was getting her check to get her lamb. About when I finished getting dressed, Amber came into my room and said, Dave, have you got my check for the lamb? And I said, I'll give it to you before I leave, sweetie. Like drink every time he says sweetie, by the way. It's about to get thick. Uh, She came up several times and I think it was the fourth time that she asked for the check that I said, sweetie. I will give you the check before I leave. Just go downstairs. You'll have the check. I promise. Just relax. Now think about this. Like this kid's about to have her dream come true. Yeah, she's so excited. Give her the fucking check, Dave. She wants the lamb. Give her the the check, Dave. (laughs) Write the check. So I came downstairs. Again, this is Dave. His story. So I came downstairs and I sat down at the table and I wrote out the check for the lamb. I'm going to tell you what, though. I'm never going to eat lamb chops again (laughs) after this story, by the way. I wrote the check out for the lamb. I sat the check down on the arm of the couch and Amber was sitting on the floor. She was eating a bowl of cereal and I said, sweetie, here's your check for the lamb. I'll see you later. I love you. 
And I turned around and walked out the door and went about my day. Here's what's odd, though, is that what he did the rest of the day is completely out of his routine. Dave did not show up for work that day. He says that he went to the gym and then went home to do his taxes. When the police asked him which way he came home from his personal training session, he couldn't remember the route that he took home. Hmm. When I came back to the house, she was gone, he said. So I figured she went to school, so she should have been at school by then. Dave then said... Uh, he went to a movie, and this is what he's saying now. So the police are interviewing him and Carrie together, which I thought was odd. They usually split them up, yeah. but they were interviewing them together. So the cops pressed him a little more, and Dave said that then he went to a movie, of which Carrie had to correct him and said, no, you didn't. You came by my work. Carrie was quoted as saying during this interview, you know, Dave had come to my work that day and brought me some chocolate-covered strawberries and roses. It was for Valentine's Day, but it was the 13th except Dave doesn't celebrate Valentine's Day. And he stuck around for like 45 minutes. And I'm like, I had to ask him to leave. I'm like, Dave, what are you doing here? Go. <laughs> Carrie's like, you gotta get the fuck out. Yeah, you say that to me in our own house. I do. Yeah, I do. Mm. And you never go. Nope. Carrie, said that he, Carrie said that he then walked out and he said, oh, that's right. After that, I went to the movie. So Dave's story is shifting. Doesn't look good for Dave because he's a parent or step-parent, but, you know, parent, yep. was the last person to see her live. And then they always say it's, like, the, the head male in the house that's typically the head man in the house that's usually kind of the first suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that while he was at home, he somehow did not get the message from the high school alerting them that uh, Amber had never shown up. She had perfect attendance, which was odd. Mm -hmm. And even Carrie questioned that, thinking, how did you not check the machine? You always check the machine. Another concern for investigators was the tension between Dave and Amber that had led the family to counseling. Amber and I didn't always get along perfectly, Dave admits. In a house, there's rules. She's a teenager. She did not want to follow the rules. There's going to be a certain amount of conflict. Uh, They didn't really talk for a whole month before Amber went missing, Carrie had said. It was constant bickering. However, Dave claims the night before Amber disappeared, they finally called a truce. (laughs) I don't know. How convenient. Now, in fairness to Dave, teenagers can be very difficult. There can be tension in the home. So, you know, it's hard. You don't want to be too judgmental yet, right? We're just collecting the facts. It definitely doesn't seem good for Dave. And even Carrie in an interview was saying at this point, she was thinking, why don't the police just arrest him? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Given the fact that that she was seen so close to the school, cops pulled survey. I don't know why talking is so hard for me today. I don't know either. Oh, my goodness. Given the fact that Amber was seen so close to the school, cops pulled surveillance footage close to the premises. They noticed a suspicious red pickup truck that had tinted windows. No one got in, no one got out, and they were never able to confirm who was driving the truck. The family was under a microscope, so clearly this is starting to create some tension. Mm -hmm. You have Dave, who's a prime suspect. You have Carrie, who on the DL is thinking, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. did did he do this? Uh, One week missing, police call in additional resources from the FBI. There were 148 registered sex offenders in Escondido. Oh, did I ever even tell you where this story is taking place? No, you did not. (laughs) Escondido, California. Okay. (laughs) Katie has joined the chat. Jesus. So Escondido, California. 
Um, so basically, there at this point was 148 sex offenders that were in the area where they lived. Police went to each of their homes and talked to each of them, and they denied any knowledge of Amber. Six weeks later, after Amber goes missing, Carrie makes the heart-wrenching decision, packs up, and moves out of the house with Allison, leaving Dave behind. Asked why she decided to move out, Carrie said, I had to because I couldn't lay in the same bed with the man who I thought might have done something to my daughter. Do I think honestly that Dave premeditated this, that he could have? No. Do I think maybe Amber bugged him five or six times about the check like she did and there was a confrontation? Maybe she fell down the stairs. I don't know. I can't tell you what went through my head, but I did think that, but did I think that Dave had planned to kill Amber? Absolutely not. Did I think an accident might have happened? Yeah. And he hit it? Yes. Move. This also triggered cops into hyperdrive. Now you have his own wife who is leaving the family home mm-hmm. because clearly she's concerned that there might be something to the allegations. They brought Dave in for my favorite thing ever. Polygraph test. Oh, polygraph. I thought it was just for the interview. The first was with their own uh poly is it polygrapher? Poly- polygrapher? Poly polygrapher. Polygrapher. They brought in their first person that does polygraphs, <laughs> and um, then they also had an FBI person do a polygraph. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. Uh, they found that some of the statements were inconsistent, so they brought him in for a third polygraph. Everyone knows how I feel about these. People call them lie detectors. First of all, they're not lie detectors. They detect when you're stressed, and if you're being essentially accused of killing your stepdaughter, I'm sure you're probably pretty fucking stressed out. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, statistics say these are only 60% accurate at best. I digress. I'm not in law enforcement, but I just have a hard time finding the validity of those. Not only now do we have the stepdad who's a suspect, we have a marriage that's imploding. Amber's dad, Mo, at this point now is fired from his job. Well, and yeah, has drained all of his finances on the search. Because he was sticking around. Months had gone by with the police continuing to focus on Dave until they finally cleared him. Around the same time, so over six months later, after Amber had vanished, Carrie's mother hired a team of live scent search and recovery dogs on her own to retrace Am- Amber's steps on the last day. The dogs led searchers to Escondido High School and then along a 15-mile stretch of highway to the remote uh, Paula Indian Reservation which we'll get that kind of plays in a little bit later. Carrie would hire psychics. She was basically doing anything to keep her daughter alive in the press. Makes sense. As every month goes by, other stories pop up. Maybe you're not getting the same attention, traction. Absolutely understand why you would do that. At the one-year anniversary on February 13th, her family held a walkathon to raise funds and awareness. However, the police were honest in the fact that they were still at ground zero and had made no progress. Mm. However, it would be shortly after that one year anniversary that another girl would go missing nearby in Rancho Bernardo that would change everything. Mm. On February 25th, 2010, so a year-ish later, 17-year-old Chelsea King vanished without a trace while on a run in Rancho Bernardo Park. She left her home in Poway, a well-to-do suburb northeast of San Diego, at about 2 p.m. She had gone on a five-mile run hiking trail. Um, This was part of her normal daily routine, given that she was on the Poway uh, cross-country team. When she failed to return home, people were concerned. 
Chelsea was a responsible straight-A student, so it was extremely out of character for her to be missing and then not let anyone know if she was running late. Writing was what Chelsea used to uh, relieve the stress associated with school, which she took school very seriously. I have no idea how that feels. Literally graduated Same. to stay eligible <laughs> for basketball. Thanks. Shout out to Coach Lots and Study Hall. Chelsea made up her mind uh, that she was going to go um, to college following graduation. She was considering a career which would pursue two of her primary interests, writing and protecting the environment. Could we have two more phenomenal, just beautiful human beings that could have done so much gone on to great things although she had researched nearly 100 colleges she'd already been accepted by the university of washington and the university of british columbia oh i had just gotten home from the gym and uh, this is her dad saying this in an interview i just got home from the gym and kelly her mom had just gotten home from running errands at the grocery store and we met in the kitchen and she asked me if i'd heard from chelsea yet because chelsea's the kind of kid who always tells us where she is said brent king we had this gut feeling as parents do. Chelsea's parents last saw her the previous evening at approximately 930 when she went to bed after playing the French horn in a high school. Call. I mean, she plays the French horn and she's going to save the environment, runs cross country, straight A student. Like, it's just ugh. heartbreaking. And it is devastating. Um, so she played the French horn at a concert for the San Diego Youth Symphony. Her parents heard her get up and leave the house about 6.15 a.m. on Thursday to keep a peer counseling appointment she had made uh, before school that day. <laughs> and she's a peer counselor. However, when they returned home from work and shopping at around 5.30, Chelsea was not home. As it became dark outside and with no word from her, uh, Brent and Kelly became extremely worried. Chelsea was still not answering her phone. Um, and like I said, it was very out of character for her to be gone and not let anybody know where she was. Her parents called several of her closest friends to see if she was with any of them, but no one had seen her. If she had been running late, she would have definitely let her parents know. Finally, at this point, unable to reach her, Chelsea's parents contacted the police. They also called their cell phone provider, um, which they used to find GPS. I'm sorry. I didn't know you could do this, quite frankly, which here, if everyone thinks someone's cheating on them. <laughs> they went to their cell provider's website, which uh, uses GPS feature on her phone, they traced the phone's location. It was still at the Rancho Bernardo Community Park, uh, which is a very heavily wooded recreation area. Oh, no. When Chelsea's father arrived at the park, he quickly found her 1994 BMW using the coordinates from the cell provider. Chelsea's phone, iPod, school clothes, and other personal items were inside her locked car. Fearing for his daughter's safety and well-being, this is heartbreaking, Brent saw a running trail not far from Chelsea's car that went into the woods. Running as fast as he could, he followed the trail, yelling out her name in every direction. Sadly, there was no response. The initial efforts of the San Diego Police and Sheriff's Department also provided zero. Oh, no. Four hours missing, word started to spread quickly, and over the next few days, approximately 200 rescue workers. So that night, like, she'd been missing for about four hours-ish, and people started to search the next day, they had over 200 rescue workers, police officers, deputies, and volunteers join forces searching a five-mile area of that park, hoping to find Chelsea alive. The Los Angeles office of the FBI also joined the search. Dogs were brought in. They had helicopters um, searching from the air. Nada. As they combed through the park, one of the volunteers stumbled upon something 
pretty devastating. They found a pair of bloodstained underwear believed to belong to Chelsea, as well as a pair of socks and a pedometer discarded on the trail. They were not wet. It had rained a few hours earlier. So they find these items and it had just rained a few hours ago and they were dry, which makes you wonder, were they just that recently discarded there Mm -hmm. or did they dry that quickly? They were able to get DNA off it. So at least that's a positive, but they showed the fam. They showed the items to the King family and they did confirm that they were Chelsea's. The police did not publicize that there was blood on the underwear. It's what they call a holdback. So when police like purposely don't share information, Either so the suspect won't flee and know they have evidence or when they find someone interrogate them, it's information that only the suspect would know. The perpetrator would know. The We've had this with several cases before where they do that, which... That's why media leaks that share information that shouldn't be shared can fuck everything up. Mm-hmm. Two days later, another volunteer... So the underwear were set off immediately for DNA testing. Two days later, another volunteer stumbled upon one of Chelsea's shoes in a sports bra found almost a mile from where the first items were discovered. Police had searched this before and found nothing. And then they looked there two days later and they found the items. Again, how recently had they been put there? Mm -hmm. Searchers pressed on their efforts. The FBI was involved even more heavily, canvassing nearly 300 homes and 600 plus tips. While waiting for the DNA results, um, the... L.A. office also had the FBI bring in sonar equipment, and they started to use divers to search the shore's lake uh, shoreline to see if they could find anything there. Police also asked for reports of any recent attacks in that area in the last year or two. They were wondering if there was a theme, if maybe Mm -hmm. there was someone else that had been attacked previously. Maybe it was the same person. They were notified of a crime uh, closer to where the socks were found, where a woman had been attacked but escaped. The attacker was never identified. The woman lived in Colorado and had been visiting, so they contacted her for more details. February 28th, three days after um, she went missing, Chelsea's parents asked for a tour of everywhere they had searched. Essentially, it was part of their process. They wanted to see where this evidence had been found. While they're looking for this, they get a phone call. Uh, The DNA evidence on Chelsea's clothes had a hit in the DNA match. It matched John Gardner III. At this time, they had no clue if she was still alive, so police quickly obviously want to find this gentleman, which I'm just saying that now because <laughs> innocent until proven guilty. Yep. Fuck this guy. Police well. had three potential addresses where he could be living and surrounded each one. However, he sometimes uh, made a home in Lake uh, Elsinore, I think is how you say it, which is 75 miles north of Poway, Um, And they found him near that area at a Mexican restaurant. He was swiftly arrested at 4.30 on suspicion of first-degree murder and forcible rape as he exited the establishment. Deputies surrounded the restaurant but waited till he came out to apprehend him to avoid any incident or danger to the public. Mm, Smart. He was reportedly drunk, wet, covered in mud. Police were disappointed that Chelsea was not with him and immediately had all three of those homes breached uh, to see if she was in there, but she was not. When they read him his Miranda rights, he immediately asked for a lawyer so police couldn't view, uh, interview him. Keep in mind, they're panicking. The clock is ticking. They still don't know where Chelsea is and if she's alive. Investigators sat down for a formal interview with him during which he denied knowing anything about Chelsea, laughed hysterically, and acted psychotic. 
Detectives uh, had to quickly move uh, to get the person from Colorado to ID him because the minute his mugshot was released, if they tried to get her to ID him, the defense could say it was tainted because she saw him on the news. Yeah. So they're literally racing against the clock. I was like getting nervous watching this in the documentary. I was like, did they do it? Did they get it? The police were able to have an officer there take six photos. Five obviously were not him. One was. 20 minutes before his mugshot was on TV, they were able to have this uh, woman from Colorado positively identify Gardner as her attacker. Wow. Yeah, that's fucking wild. Um, After his arrest, at this time also, they started to find other cases that he could potentially have been a part of. One of them was a connection with a 16-year-old, a girl who had an attempted kidnapping in 2009. Uh, Police had a sketch artist do a photo that looked chillingly like Gardner. In October, the girl was walking to a friend's house in the Lakeland Village area near Lake... I think I'm saying this right. I hope so. Elsinore. It sounds like a Disney character. Elsinore. At approximately 7 a.m., when a man in a gold four-door sedan pulled up alongside her and asked her for directions. At one point, he showed the girl a gun, told her to get inside the car, but the girl ran away, reported the incident to the police. There are a number of other incidents in which young girls have been followed by a man in a black sedan uh, who matched Gardner's description as they walked near their homes in Poway, Escondido, Rancho Bernardo, and Lake Elsinore. The car had also been seen parked in front of one of Gardner's relatives in Rancho Bernardo, where he was known to reside from time to time. During the interview, he actually said to police, not being prompted, and they had never brought this up yet, you're probably going to try to pin that Amber girl on me, um, of which police had hypothesized they could be related because they were only a few off-ramps away from each other, but they never brought it up. He's the one that brought it up first. Hmm. Let's talk just a little bit about John Gardner III. I want to give a little context and paint a little picture of the shit stain. So he was born in Culver City, California. His parents were divorced, and he frequently relocated around Southern California as a child. His father, he said, was an abusive alcoholic who beat him. His mother was a psychiatric nurse and put him on psychiatric medication starting at age six. Mm. He was held in a psych hospital for 60 days at age 10. Now, this is very timely. I just finished watching. I'm almost done watching the 24 Faces of Billy Mulligan, which is another case about psychopathy, mental health. To be clear, if this individual, Gardner, did go through all of these things, that's terrible. However, if he did also do these things, which there's going to be a plot twist, (laughs) then... That's not okay, though. So I'm not showing sympathy, to be clear. Just acknowledging that mental health can be a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, he was put in a psych hospital at age 10 for 60 days on psych meds starting at 6. Um, as a student, he was labeled seriously emotionally disturbed. Um, when he graduated from high school, he uh, had a 3.2 grade point average and an IQ of 113. He was diagnosed with um, ADHD. While in school, he worked odd jobs, including a lifeguard. As a teenager, he was convicted of trespassing at high school. He graduated high school, moved to San Diego, and worked at Big Five Sporting Goods Store. He had been convicted in 2000 of molesting a 13-year-old female neighbor. Prosecutors said he lured the victim to his home with an offer to watch Patch Adams. Though a psychiatrist recommended that he be given the maximum term of 10 years, 
prosecutors recommended a six-year sentence. He served five of those years of the sentence, um, and they put on a GPS device um, until his parole ended in 2008, four months before the murder of Amber. As required by Megan's law, he did register his residence. However, we're going to get to how the system failed the fuck out of that in a second. He lived in Escondido before moving to Lake Elsinore, but authorities said he spent time on the weekends at his mother's home in Rancho Bernardo. He was also investigated by his parole officer for possession of marijuana, but the incident was dismissed. He totaled over 168 parole violations while wearing his ankle bracelet. According to GPS data, he spent time in close proximity to several schools in front of a daycare center on prison grounds where he was believed to be delivering contraband to prisoners and in remote locations that would later um, come to fruition about why he was there. So this dude was a parole violation that he shouldn't have been out. No, he shouldn't have. There's, there's no possible way. And then you see that on his GPS. So isn't that like going to be a red flag or something's going to go off? Like uh, he keeps going by schools and daycares and prison. I mean, who knows when he was being evaluated, there was a whole gamut of opinions. Some people said that he's just a manipulative douchebag. Who's an asshole, a danger to society. He should never be out anywhere. However, he, from the parole board considered him a moderate low risk sex offender a group that has a 12.8% chance of reoffending in five years. If you have a 0.1% chance of reoffending yeah. in five years, so we're going to take the, we're going to roll the dice. Yeah. Because <clears throat> 12.8%, that means there are people that this person could actually mm-hmm. violate. There's still a chance. Get rid of them. Well, well I meant like get them back in. Yes. <laughs> we don't condone murder. No, no, no. On Tuesday, March 2nd, the detectives and police were trying to find out what to charge him with because they hadn't found the body yet. They have DNA matching, however, with no body in some circumstances. Now, DNA isn't really circumstantial, but still, without a body, prosecution can basically push reasonable doubt. You know, there's a lot of gray area there. So the cops were talking to the DA, laying out the evidence of their phone, uh, laying out the evidence, and their phones all started to go off. Shortly before 1 p.m. on Tuesday, March 2nd, a member of the police diving team found a body in an isolated area south of Lake Hodges, approximately 10 feet from the water line, in what could best be described as a shallow grave. They saw what they thought looked like hair coming out from the rocks on the shoreline. I know. It was covered by a layer of debris, and it was approximately one half mile from where Chelsea's car had been found in the Rancho Bernardo Community Park. Um, the body was close to the same area where the running shoe had previously been reported or had been found. The next day, on March 3rd, uh, John um, or Gardner, our boy, John Gardner, Albert's his middle name, by the way, appeared for the San Diego court uh, for his arraignment on charges that he raped and murdered Chelsea. Chelsea's father and mother were present in the courtroom, as were family members of Amber. So Amber Dubois' parents had also been a part of by the way, they jumped in right away to help with the search and were trying to be there also for Chelsea's parents. They were seated several rows behind the defendant. A gardener looked down much of the time, uh, said little, avoid making eye contact with the family. His hands were shackled and deputies obviously were right next to him. 
Well, they had enough direct evidence to at least charge him with Chelsea's murder. Again, they're concerned about getting the conviction. Mm -hmm. There was nothing linking him to Amber. Um, at this point in the investigation, no one was even totally certain the two were connected. So the differences they pointed out was the age difference, 14 and 17. I cannot imagine, by the way, how Amber's family is feeling. I mean, it's like a year. So now, and I'm sorry, they have the body now. Like, they have everything they need for Chelsea's conviction. Well, I get what you're saying with the age thing, but wasn't he previously convicted for 13. attempted on a 13? Right. That's a good point. I tried to block that out of my brain. Fair. For Chelsea, they have everything they need. They have the body. They have the DNA. <laughs> they have nothing, though, for Amber. I can't imagine our family's feeling. Think about this, too. Amber's family still has no answers. It's been over a year. No closure. Chelsea's family, which I'm sure they're not, like, comparing notes and think, oh, you're so lucky. It only took five days. But, and this wasn't lost on Chelsea's family, either. They were very supportive and verbal about how Amber's family had struggled and, and just everything. So both these families were very supportive of each other. Then something completely unexpected happened. Gardner's lawyer approached the San Diego County District Attorney with a unique offer. The DA called the lead detective, told him, go pick up Gardner in jail. He's going to take you to show you a body. Then you immediately drop him back off at jail. Don't tell anyone. Don't say anything. Like cryptic as fuck, right? They definitely had him for Chelsea. They had nothing for Amber. They had to make a decision to take this offer with the fear this could be a trick, could be an escape attempt. However, on March 5th, Gardner then uh, guided them to an old water tank where Amber's shallow grave was, a location detectives said would have been almost impossible for anyone to find on their own. There was, however, and this was really hard dirt where this was, so there were still shovel markings that Gardner was able to point to. Cops marked the spot, took him directly back to jail. That night, because they didn't want anyone to know yet, they didn't mm -hmm. want the media to know, Amber's family, like, nobody knew about this. It was, like, super on the down low. The crime lab and the forensic archaeologist came out there all night in secret and exhumed the remains of Amber. She was identified through dental records. I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but just ironically enough, where they found her was about a mile from where the live scent dogs had led Amber's family to a year earlier. I know. So the do so dogs were close, at least, I guess. Yeah. So Amber's parents received the phone call saying that they had discovered uh, their daughter's body. However, they couldn't tell Amber's family how they found the body. Again, we'll get to this in a minute here. It had been part of the deal with Gardner's attorney. Basically, Gardner had said, I will show you where Amber's body is, but you can't tell people I showed you. And you can't use that in your case against me as evidence. Cops had to build a case against him, but they could not use the body. What do you have then? Not really anything. God, this guy fucking sucks. Like circumstantial. Sucks. So basically, they had to try to find the shovel, maybe. Mm -hmm. But investigators could find no evidence linking him to the crime. There was still no tangible connection between Gardner and Amber. What a fucking asshole. And he couldn't even give the family closure then. However, it appeared that Amber's family was not going to get justice until Chelsea's family intervened. Gardner was willing to admit guilt for both murders and provide details 
only if the King family agreed, because essentially the DA, they always go to the family and ask, hey, what do you want the punishment to be? He would tell them details and admit to them both if the King family took the death penalty off the table. Now, the DA believed that they had a strong case for the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. However, Amber's family decided to prioritize justice for both families and accepted the terms. Brent King, in a press conference, emphasized that the Dubois family's anguish over the past 14 months and the importance of getting answers about Amber's murder is more important. That's really commendable and selfless. Piece of shit agrees to plead guilty, and he agrees to plead guilty um, to charges for the girl in Colorado. He's not allowed to make an appeal, so his deal is you plead guilty to all this shit, and then you just go the fuck away. No one ever hears from you again until you probably get killed in prison because you're a pedophile. And, you know, we know how that prison justice goes. Mm -hmm. Amber's mom had begged to get time with him. She wanted to talk to Gardner one-on-one. Obviously, they kept saying no. And then finally, two days before sentencing, Carrie was granted a meeting with him. I don't know how, I mean. How you stay calm. Fortunately, I've never been in this situation. But she said in an interview that she had been coached by the Escondido Police Department that if she showed rage or anger, she would not get the answers that she wanted. So when I went in there, I had the mindset, I'm just going to ask the questions. Basically, if you get this guy worked up and pissed off, he's not going to respond to you. Mm-hmm. So as hard as it is, I'm sure, to not want to jump across the table. According to Gardner, and then she had to sit and listen. But I guess for her, like she said, this was her path to, I, guess, I don't know if you ever get closure yeah. or acceptance. But basically, according to Gardner, he was driving in the neighborhood at about 7 a.m. when he spotted Amber walking alone down an empty side street. She wasn't anywhere where any of us thought she was. She was nowhere near the school, Carrie said. So those people that said they saw her a block away from the school, Gardner said that where he picked her up, she was nowhere near there. He said he had never seen her before and thought she was older. He preferred girls who were 16 or 17, which to your point is totally contradictory to the 13-year-old survivor. So this was unplanned and just an opportunity. You can see in one of the the Dateline documentaries where he picked her up, too, and it's on a side street, and there's a huge chain link fence down, like, two blocks. So she had nowhere to go. Like, she couldn't turn around. She was, like, cornered, like, on the sidewalk. He said, I passed uh, her driving down the street. That was the first time I saw her. I pulled up next to her with the window down in the car. I had the knife out and visible. I told her I also had a gun and to get in the car or it was going to get a lot worse. She actually looked at me kind of in shock and disbelief and asked me if I was kidding. I raised my voice and yelled, no, get the F in the car. I drove to the remote area and on driving, I put the music on. She wanted to hear music so she could pretend that she wasn't there. This is, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this part. Everyone knows what happens. During the 40 minute ride to the reservation, he said that she badgered him and was terrified begging to go. She asked me why I was doing this, what was wrong, but she wasn't crying. She never cried, Carrie said. Uh, She said that he shared with her that she just kept going, why are you doing this, why are you doing this, and asking a lot of questions. I'm not going to go into more detail. We don't need to. Um, So basically, he took her to the location, Mm -hmm. whatever. We all know. 
and then she died via stab wounds. Yeah. So he is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole uh, for a first-degree murder. After receiving his formal sentence, everyone get ready to break something because he's got some things he wanted to say and be interviewed in 48 Hours Mystery. These are all quotes of John Gardner. I am the most dangerous type of sexual predator. I will kill. I know I will. I am the type that needs to be locked up forever. I've done things to my family members. I've hurt them. I've hit them. I've beaten people. I've done a lot of things I regret in my life and I wish I could take back, but I still do the same things over and over again. I'm on meds right now. And can you see the anger in my eyes? Just trying to talk. I get angry. I blow up. I explode. I don't know how to describe it. I feel like I'm out of control with myself at times. And I go and do things I regret for the rest of my life. Gardner claims that he's haunted by the memories of his victims. It's like torture. I hurt so many people in such a bad way, and I have to live with that knowledge. But he has trouble saying that he has remorse. Honestly, I do have remorse, the word remorse. I regret it completely. I don't even know the meaning of the word remorse. I say regret. I regret everything I've done. Yeah, because you got caught. Yeah. Like I said, on May 15, 2010, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. This was interesting. In addition to Chelsea and Amber, uh, when he pled guilty, so I thought this was ironic, the the girl that he attacked from Colorado, her name was Candace, I think it's Mankayo is how you say it, and that was near the same spot where Chelsea King had vanished. She said in her victim statement um, at the end of the trial during the sentencing, which, I mean, obviously he's going to get life, but it's still completely appropriate and necessary mm-hmm. to allow victims to be heard, or survivors. He threw me to the ground. And so, so she's saying this in the courtroom, and this just tells you what a monster this guy is. He threw me to the ground, pinned me to the ground. Uh, like I said, I was screaming, and he said, shut up, and I said, no. And then I said, well, you're going to have to kill me first because I thought he was trying to rape me. He said that can be arranged. Now, she's the daughter of a world kickboxing champion and was fighting for her life. She said, I took my left, my right elbow, I bashed him in the nose and then grabbed his, uh, grabbed his face and turned away. And I got up and I ran faster than I've ever run in my life. While she's saying this, Gardner turns to his attorney and says, she never punched me. That's a lie. It's still important for him during this moment to try to prove that, like, she didn't get a one-up on him. Mm-hmm. <sighs> a spokesperson for the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation said that Gardner is housed in the protective housing unit, I'm sure, of the California State Prison, uh, same place where Charles Manson was once held. Oh. Also, random fact, this is home to Philip Garrido, who was the man who kidnapped J.C. Duggard. Oh. Remember her? She luckily was found alive. Uh, just a few other quotes of this skid mark of a human. Basically, this I thought was interesting. He said, um, I mean, there's a couple things. I'm not even going to read all the shit that he said. This one, though, I thought was interesting that he basically said that he's either going to uh, kill himself, uh, one of the two. Either I'll kill myself or uh, someone will finally come after me. Yeah. One last point, and then I, we are going to at least end this with something that... Um, both the families have done to try to help other people. Interesting, there was a book that was written about him called The Lost Girls. The author basically says that Gardner actually asked for help after he had killed Amber, but not Chelsea yet. He reached out to at least half a dozen 
uh, psychiatric facilities, and his mom went with him to a specific one in Riverside in February. According to the author of the book, he told them that he was a 5150, right, a danger to himself or others, which means he could have been held for 72 hours. However, the doctor wrote him a script for some medication and told him to go on his way. The doctor asked him at this specific moment, right now, do you think you're going to hurt yourself or anybody else? And he said no. However, he literally had also just told him, the doctor, but I, I do want to hurt people. Yeah. Yeah. I Some people kind of claim, was he lying about that? However, the author did say that she talked to the mom. The mom corroborated the story and also produced this prescription drug bottles that showed that they were actually written and filled on the same day that they're saying that they went to the hospital. Also, and this is true in quite a few areas, um, but in the Escondido area, they don't have mental health facilities that take sex offenders. Um, let's see, about a week or two. Oh, okay, so here we go. So about a week or two after, sorry, I got really heated. My neck was getting red. I just, I don't know what it is. It's it's just the violation of just innocent. Ch- I mean, it's anybody who's innocent, but it's like kids and mm-hmm. fucking animals. Like I can't. <laughs> About a week or two after uh, Gardner pled guilty, Carrie moved back into the family home. Dave came home and was like, what the fuck are you doing here? She was like, I'm moving back in. Dave was like, no, you're not. I don't like you. I don't love you. Carrie was adamant. Let's try to figure this out again. And guess what? They did. Okay. That's a rough spot to be in. I I don't know. I'm sure Dave, Cave, was super pissed that everyone thought that he... Had potentially done it. He didn't really help himself. Dave Cave did not help himself. And then you have Carrie, who I'm sure that was terrible for her to have to admit that maybe Dave Cave had done it. So both of them. However, at least the family unit's back together. I'm sure it took a lot of <clears throat> working on it to get there. Let's close, though, talking about some important legislature that's come out of this case um, by both Amber and Chelsea's families. In September 2010... Uh, The California Assembly Bill 1844, better known as Chelsea's Law, was signed into law by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. The organization Stop Child Predator said the law increases penalties, parole provisions, and oversight for the first time for first time sex offenders who commit the most heinous crimes against children. Thousands of predators have been charged under the law since its implementation. At 17, Tyler, Chelsea's brother, had made a documentary called Chelsea's Light, A Brother's Journey hoping the one-strike law becomes the rule of the land against the worst child predators. I have nightmares every night, said Tyler. I have pretty bad ones. I don't want to talk about them. They're pretty bad. They wake me up at night. Now, he was just 13 when his big sister was taken away. And what a boss at 17 to be able to make a documentary about something that I can only imagine was extremely devastating to have to relive and go through. It's truly amazing what the power of an engaged community can accomplish, said Brent King. Today is the day to announce, and they did start something called the Chelsea Light Foundation, where they basically um, raised money for scholarships. However, in 2022, they did announce that they were going to start winding down the foundation. I mean, that's 12 amazing years of doing mm-hmm. good for the community. Yeah. For Amber's family, run. her mother Carrie dedicated her life to creating the search and rescue group Team Amber to help families find their missing loved ones. In September 2011, um, they helped locate a missing student uh, named Michelle Lee. In 2018, Team Amber helped the Escondido police track down two missing teenagers with the help of the search dog named after her daughter. Oh, nice. I wasn't able to find anything recent on that group. Also, I mean, you give so much of yourself. At some point, you have to almost wonder 
you know, when do you bookend it? Mm-hmm. And then not move on. But you, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just, I mean, that's tough. Gardner's wasting away in prison. I don't know. A lot of a lot of things in this story. But I think it's most important to remember Amber and Chelsea. Yep. Amber, 14, loved animals, wanted to be a marine biologist, was so excited to get her lamb. Beautiful, loved to read. You have Chelsea, who was ready to go to college, loved running, straight-A student. Going to help the environment. Going to help the environment. Those are the people who we need to be uh, making sure we end the story about. So that's the story of Amber Dubois and Chelsea King. Wow. Heart goes out to their families, but uh, I'm... So I said they did stuff to help out as many people as they could, even the second family where they wanted to make sure that... You're talking about Chelsea's family being willing to drop the death penalty. Yes. yes. I knew where you are going with yeah, it. Yeah, Chelsea's family being able to... That they would lessen it just so that they could help out Amber's family. Correct. I do encourage you all to do some research in your area and see... So Chelsea's law, they are trying to push that across the entire United States. It hasn't been signed into law in all states. Uh, so I encourage you, if you are interested in supporting that cause, um, to look that up and see if there's a way that you can sign any petitions or, you know, communicate with your um, government officials about Chelsea's law in your state. Thank Some you, Lauren, for the suggestion. Again, these are really hard stories to tell and to hear. A lot of dynamics at play here, but it's the underlying message of harsh punishment and management and monitoring of people who commit sexual offenses. It is our job to protect our children and our youth, and we've got to stay on it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to everybody who listens. We appreciate it. Please send us any uh, requests that you have, any feedback you have. Again, you can go to Instagram at Bad Human Pod. We do post um, information about the case and would love to hear your comments or thoughts. Um, BadHumanPodcast at gmail.com as well if you have mm-hmm. any feedback, uh, good or um, bad. We take it all. You know, we Take get it a all few. in stride. Yeah. We get a few. I'll never forget the first negative feedback we got about how I talk too slow. That was from Mr. Big Dick Energy in Michigan. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and as always, please remember to treat yourselves and each other with love, kindness, and respect. I'm K Mac. And I'm, of course, the answer. Good night. Good night.